I hope you will take a Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. It's page 871 in these Bibles in the pews. We, uh, for a few months, have been looking at various parables that Jesus told. And just to remind you, the, the, Bible, the Bible has many types of literature in it. It has poetry, it has parable, it has proverb, it has historical narrative. Um, it has uh, prophecy, it, it, it has didactic teaching sections like the book of Romans. So when someone says to me, do you take the Bible literally, uh, I respond the same way R.C. Sproul did, and that is I take the literal parts literally. Meaning, if it's a poetic statement, like in the, in the Psalms that says God walks on the wings of the wind, that's, a, that's not literal. That's, that's poetic to express the majesty of God. But typically behind a comment or question about do you take the Bible literally is the assumption they don't want to take any of it literally, including the historical narratives, and that, that's where we differ. But when we come to parables, as I, I've mentioned, they are not illustrations so much as they are stories tossed alongside a truth that Jesus would teach, and it's left up to the listener to make the connection. And we have another of these in what's called the parable of the rich fool. So if you'll follow along as I read beginning in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us that your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We pray that you'd use it toward that end now. In Jesus' name, amen. The point of this parable is to deal with the truth that Jesus is teaching about covetousness. Here in Luke chapter 12, a large crowd has gathered to hear Jesus. Some have walked from very far away. And he's been teaching earlier in the chapter and before that some very weighty, he's been teaching on some very weighty subjects. Subjects like about how God knows everything about us, that there'll be a coming day of judgment, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In the midst of teaching on these very substantive matters, someone unidentified in the crowd says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And the question 
is, or the comment or the demand from this stranger is totally out of place. It's out of place with what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about eternal matters, and now someone brings up something about finances in, in an inheritance. And so the man, the stranger, the person who asks his question, changes the subject from the eternal to the mundane. And Jesus responds, as we just read in verse 14, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? That's a severe response from Jesus. That was not cordial. It was not polite. Jewish rabbis were often asked to determine judgments in some sorts of civil cases. And, and so Jesus is not saying that he does not have the capacity to, to do that. He's just saying, that's not why I'm here. The man's question shows he's completely out of touch with Jesus' message in ministry. Do you, uh, do you ever look back at things maybe you said you shouldn't have said? And you knew they were a mistake at the time, but as you get older, you see they were really bad. No, really, really bad. No, that was really a big mistake. They say that, you know, when you're in your 40s, you say, boy, when I was in my 20s, I just, oh, man, I didn't know anything. Then you get in your 60s, and you say, man, when I was in my 40s, I didn't, oh. They, they, I wonder if in your 90s you'll look back and say, I wonder if in, in my 80s, man, I was so, I didn't know anything back in my 80s. One man told me after the first service, when you're in your 90s, you don't remember your 80s. <laughs> when I was uh, about eight or nine years old, uh, it was the first time I was around uh, the death of a relative. My mother came from a family of seven children. and She had uh, four other sisters. She had two brothers. And I never met, met the oldest sister who was named Sadie. I just knew her as Aunt Sadie. But as far back as I could remember, she was very sick. And the day came that she passed away. So I, I was, I'd never seen people grieve. I, I'd never seen the, those kind of emotions up close. And I, I remember in preparation for the funeral, uh, my father and my mother and I drove, I can't remember if my sister was in the car because of what I'm going to tell you has just become tunnel vision. We drove to the local florist in our small Alabama town. And in those days, and I know you younger people won't believe it, you'd, you'd pull up and if you were a man, you waited in the car. And the mom went in to get the florist. And although I wasn't a man, I was... I was a boy, so I stayed in the car. And where I, this was before they planted the redwoods. Uh, the dinosaurs still walked on the earth. And anyway, my mother came out of the florist holding two uh, large arrangements of flowers. And she said to my father, who was in the front seat, "Do we you choose this arrangement or this arrangement to have at the funeral?" And before my father could answer, I blurted out. Pick that one, it's red and white, the colors of Alabama. And my mother just looked at me with total disgust, didn't say anything, just exasperated, like, you foolish boy, which is exactly what I was. And now as the years pass, I realize how out of place that was. The comment, regardless of regardless of the emotion behind it, did not fit the severity of the moment. Well, that's how this man's comment was when he asked about splitting up the inheritance. So Jesus, refusing to intervene, he still makes a point. 
in verse 15, he says to that man and all who could hear him, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, which was at the root of the man's question. Covetousness or greed. Take care, Jesus said, or be on your guard against every kind, every form of covetousness or greed. What is covetousness? In the Bible, it's just the desire to have more and more of whatever material thing, thinking as though that will bring us satisfaction. That's what covetousness is. And Jesus is warning us to be proactive. Take care. It's up to you. You must take the initiative to be on guard. Why? Because it diverts you away from what is most important. We're not accustomed to viewing life from this perspective that Jesus has. I mean, we tend to view wealth at worst as morally neutral and realize it's not money, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, and it's how you use that money. And so I think most of us understand being wealthy or not is, is not sinful in and of itself. Of course not. And, but our natural tendency is to pursue it, to desire it. And so this is unnatural to read where Jesus says, be on your guard, but he goes on in the latter part of verse 15. It says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So this directly contradicts the outlook of most of the human race because when we ask ourselves, what is the life worth living? What is the ideal life? You may fantasize about certain material things or luxuries or your life consisting of which direction do I uh, lay on the beach today, uh, or or perfect personal peace and affluence. Uh, massive debts are incurred with people trying to pursue this kind of dream uh, because we think that, well, if I have that, then I'll find peace, prosperity, meaning, success, whatever. And Jesus says, no, life, real life, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He's saying that philosophy is a lie. Covetousness is dangerous because it moves your life in a direction opposite from that which really matters. Wealth cannot bring happiness. Christ, well, throughout the Bible, Matthew 4, man cannot live by bread alone. Psalm 16 says the fullness of joy is found in the presence of God. Matthew 5, only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied. So it's in this context Jesus gives a parable. Were you wondering if we're getting to the parable or not? We are right now. Okay, but I want you to see it's this context of teaching about take care and be on your guard against every form of covetousness and greed. With that, he tells this story about this man, this wealthy man whose land produced plentifully. Now what can we say about this man whom God calls a fool? Pretty strong language. What do we know about him? Well, we know that he lives as though there is no God. Note well, there's nothing said about this man to indicate he did anything wrong. All it says is the land of a certain man had a bumper crop, which lets you know God's in control of such things. So it doesn't tell us that he's a, uh, an evil man, that he's making money at the expense of others that he's criminal in his behavior, that he's raising some kind of crop on the black market will bring such a profit? Nothing like that is said. 
Probably in our community, he would have been very respectable. May have been even a civic leader of some sort. So nothing said there about his moral character for him to be called a fool. But what we see is God is not a factor in how he makes his decisions. There's no indication he takes time to pray, to give thanks to God for this harvest that must have exceeded all expectations. He doesn't seek guidance or counsel from anyone else as to how he can be a good steward of this which God has entrusted to him. So we see also that he's unaware of the source of his wealth. He faces a dilemma that few of us will ever face. He's in the enviable position of having land so productive that he's unable to store all the crops, and that's how you measured wealth in those days. So you might say, this is wonderful. If, if he was a member of the church I pastored, I would have said this is a blessing from God for which you're responsible. Thank God for how he's blessed you. The question is, though, how did he become rich? Why was the land so productive? Now, I'll remind you this. The Bible says that it is God who bestows wealth on people. Proverbs says that it is the blessing of God that makes one rich. That is Proverbs 10:22. The apostle Paul asked, "What do you have that you did not receive?" But this man is oblivious apparently to the source of his riches, where they came from. He's unaware that they have been entrusted to him by the hand of God. So what shall I do? he asked. Like I said, he could thank God, he could Endeavor to think, how can I help others with this? But in this, in this parable, his concern is for only himself. Uh, like so many who have wealth, now his focus is on how to keep it. Now that I've got it, I don't want it to be lost. I don't want it to be taken away. I don't want it to be stolen. Matthew Henry, probably the most read Bible commentator today, said disquieting care is the common fault of the abundance of this world and the common fault of those who have abundance those who don't have wish they have those who have think how can I hold on to it how can I increase it how can I keep it from diminishing so the first thing he's unaware of the source of his wealth second we see that he's unaware of any higher use of his wealth than his own personal consumption as he ponders what to do with it, uh, notice the repetition of the word my or I in, in verses 18. My crops, my barns, my grain, my goods, my soul. He doesn't even mention anyone else. He's concerned with his own self-indulgence, and he fails to see that his wealth is a gift from God. So his conclusion is, I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years you've got a long life in front of you so relax eat drink be merry what's he plan to do is his wealth consume it over time third we see that he is unaware of his own mortality he assumes he has many years to live he looks forward to those years of pleasure and it's normal for for anyone that's except in, in dire health to think that, well, I've got many years in, ahead of me. We assume our time 
is our own. It's all too common to hear of older couples who planned and saved for retirement. They build a house. I remember the house where I grew up in Alabama down the street. A, there was a couple, and they had built this house. I don't think the man was retired a week before he dropped dead of a heart attack. And I don't, you like me have probably heard numerous such stories. So we may think I've got years, decades, and then the time comes, and it comes when we did not expect it. It's not just the problem of the elderly, the, the young people, you, you really think you'll live forever. Do you know that during World War II in the United States Armed Forces, they found that the best age to train young men to be fighter pilots was age 18, not age 22. And you might think, well, 22 and 18 are only four years different. What, what difference does it make? At age 22, they found, at least in the 1940s, a young man began to have a sense of his own mortality. But at 18, I'll live forever. Put me in the plane. I can do anything. Nothing's going to happen to me. But the fact is, we don't know if we have another day. And so it's not wise to live as though we do. We could die at any instant. So are you ready? You need to be ready. So this man meets reality. Jesus says, God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. What is a fool? Why does God call him such? A fool is someone who lives contrary to reality. That's what a fool is. In the Bible, it's someone who lives contrary to reality. If you had a builder who acted as though there were no laws of gravity, you would say, that, that's a foolish builder. If there was a farmer who acted as though there was no changing of the seasons, you'd say, that's foolish. You're going to plant at the wrong time of the year. So a fool is someone who lives contrary to reality. And the Bible says the greatest fool is the person who says there's no God because that's contrary to reality. I had a friend that had a daughter that was very wayward, and he decided to change schools. She wanted to change schools, drugs, other things have really gotten involved. And she was in high school. So where they lived in the community here in Georgia, they went to, uh, they decided, well, let's try out a Christian school. And they went to this uh, Christian school, they had a good reputation, and the, the headmaster, the head person, uh, sat down to, to meet with him and his daughter and to, to talk to her about her desire to come to that school. And as they were talking, he said, look, let me ask you a question. The Bible, the book of Proverbs, says that there's a wise person, and a wise person is someone who knows what God says to do and seeks to do it. There's the naive person who doesn't even know what God says is right or wrong and doesn't have any desire to do either one of them. Then there's the fool who knows the right thing to do but chooses not to do it. Which of those three are you? And she looked at me and said, I really don't know. And he said, well, then we don't think our school is for you because we're looking for the first type of person. Now, she ended up coming to the conclusion of which three she was, and she went to that school. But what a piercing question. So when God calls this man a fool, and it's God that's calling him this in the parable, 
He's living contrary to reality. He's thinking that everything he has is his. He's going to live for a long, long time, and he's very presumptuous about the future. And for that reason, God calls him a fool. So what are the two crucial facts that come from this? One, you and I are mortal. When he says to him in the parable, this night your soul is required of you. Tonight, your life is over. There's no second chance. There'll be no going back. There'll be no more opportunities. You will stand before God, and in this case, you will be unprepared. And when it uses the word required, your soul is required of you, it's the term that a banker would use to call in a loan. Like if you owed the bank $2,000 on a loan and you received a call and said, we need you to bring that tomorrow and pay this off. We are calling it in. We loaned it to you. We want it back. That's the terminology here. That it's So God said, I loaned you your life. You borrowed that life. Now I'm taking it back. Do we live for the present? Do you think about eternity? Do we address the needs of our soul? The really foolish thing was the rich man's confident assurance that the future was in his control. And life is always uncertain. It always hangs by a thread. At any moment, we might be called upon to give an account of ourselves. And so to live strictly for material things, God says, is foolish. They're temporary. And I hesitate to say this, but it it makes a point. And it's true for men and women, but I'm going to address it to the women. Women, if you have really nice things, clothes, furniture, stuff that you really cherish, maybe it's been passed down to you, do you know where that's going to end up? It's going to end up in the hands of another woman. Men, things you've accumulated, you know where it's going to end up? A goodwill. And it's somebody in... Uh, and you, go, you walk down to the junkyard and <laughs> I was on the top floor of the Fickling building Friday and I was with a person who doesn't live here in Macon and I said oh look at this view and they said yeah we can see the Indian mounds from here and I said where and they pointed and I, I said that's not the Indian mounds that's the landfill <laughs> where much of our stuff will end up So what's the conclusion? How does Jesus conclude? Thankfully, he he tells us what to do. It's just not a a warning. He, He says in verse 21, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So that you might say the moral, the moral of this is, I want to be rich toward God. We should be rich toward God. What does that mean? If we know that to lay up treasure for ourselves is to accumulate stuff only for here and now, and not tend to our soul, Jesus says, sell your possessions, give to charity, make yourselves purses which do not wear out, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say to impoverish yourself. He's saying that the main thing is your soul, to be rich toward God. How do we do that? It's to have treasure in heaven. To have that, we need Christ and our hearts and the Holy Spirit to empower us. There is not a person here who can be rich toward God with your own strength. This is not something innate to us. We cannot do this in our own strength. I need to know that I am weak and foolish and repent of my sins, that I need Christ to free me from the love of worldliness and temporary things and to look to Christ alone as my Redeemer. 
The Apostle Paul put it this way, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him whose sake, their sake he died and was raised. And then they were to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We can only do that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're to love our neighbor as ourself. All in Christ. So are you ready? Are you ready to give an account? You don't need to know when it will be, and neither do I. I may never see you again. This may be the last sermon I preach. But I tell you this, I want to meet the Lord on that day knowing that I challenged you to be ready. Some of you know that have studied history know the name of Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the emperor of the people that we refer back to as the Franks. That was the, the geography at that time, these people we call the Franks that later became Germany and France. He died around the year 840 A.D., so it was a long time ago. 160 years or so after he had died, the emperor at that time sent some people to open up the tomb of Charlemagne, the place where he'd been buried. And they went into the tomb, and yes, there were some royal treasures there. But what stood out was what they saw next. There was the throne of the king, the emperor. On the throne was a skeleton seated there. On the head of the skeleton was a crown. In the lap of the skeleton was a copy of the Gospels. And there was one bony finger placed on the verse in the Gospel of Mark. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What does it profit a man or woman or anyone else to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Let's pray together. Our Father, this is contrary to the way we typically think. We live in what we see and touch and feel, which is material. And yet you tell us that there is life after this life. You tell us that you yourself are real, Christ is real, and yet we can't see it. It's invisible. So we pray that you would give us faith to follow what Christ said in the dependence on the Holy Spirit not in our own efforts, not trying to better ourselves, uh, but to be wise and not foolish about what is real, that you are real, that the gospel is real. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.